Hello and welcome to the Rank and Flank podcast. I'm Vinton. These are my co-hosts, AJ. Hello, hello, hello. And Tim. Yeah, just one hello from me today. Uh, the theme for today's episode. <laughs> Big nose. <laughs> I can't come back from that. <laughs> it's true. Ouch. <laughs> I'm only telling the truth. Uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, cavalry in our art of war and hobby horse sections. And we're also going to have a new section today uh, called the Town Crier, where we're going to discuss some uh, news and rumors from Games Workshop. Uh, just about old world and things. Uh, which I think we can just jump right into here. Oh, oh, I don't think we mentioned this last time, but there's been a reveal of uh, the Orcs and Goblins Arcane Journal. Uh, as well as a whole new model range that it, well a whole new old model range that they're bringing back uh, on a made to order uh, it kind of feels like one of those weird ass fantasy prophecies what was old will become new again <laughs> um, so yeah we're we're kind of living in uh, we're living in a 90s remake of games workshop and you know uh, having been in the 90s original of games workshop I'm pretty stoked to see it um so yeah the the only stuff that i've seen from games where they did one sort of spoiler page about orcs and goblins and we've had nothing else since then in two weeks so excited to see that they're doing it and that that's what's coming next and we well as far as we can tell that's the next faction um I don't know if disappointed is the right word. Uh, I'm going to say disappointed. Disappointed that we don't know more yet. Oh, it looks like these sculpts are, I believe they're from Brian Nelson, who um, sculpted um, the orcs for the 6 Ed box set, which had, funnily enough, orcs and empire. Um, if you have a look at um, the archers, they're definitely from that set. So's the chariots that are in there. And as you know, every good green skin has a excellent chariot. Um, I think, as you said earlier, we've got some returning on a mate of order basis. We've got the stone trolls, nice, which looks like they're the one sculpted by Mike Perry from nineteen ninety two, ninety three, and also we're going to have um, the shaman who rides the wyvern. I mean, I've said wyvern, wyvern rider. That's very difficult for me to say, you see. See, because you should be saying Wyvern Rider. Willie? Well, I, 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 I wink so. <laughs> this is... Anyway, uh, keep, keep going. <laughs> it, the monster in question was sculpted um, by uh, Trish Carden. Uh, I think the rider was sculpted by Ali Morrison. They were married, weren't they, Trish and Ali? Or they got married? Yeah, they were uh, Marauder Miniatures. Back yeah, in the that's day. right. That's right. Yeah, I met them. I met them both when I was over at studio. Uh, lots yep. of piercings between the two of them is all I remember. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Keep going. Didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's, I think I've. Did they sculpt the piercings themselves? <laughs> <laughs> that, you know what? I wouldn't be too surprised if they did. Like, they were incredibly prolific. Yeah, very talented as well. Um, yeah. I think um, Trish is still um, making miniatures to this day and is responsible for a lot of the monsters in Warhammer in general. Cool. Um, just an interesting fact about the uh, Shaman, if it is that Shaman, that was Blacktooth, although it wasn't a named character, that was Grom the Paunch's um, best mate. 
shall we say, yeah. who um, died uh, um, in the invasion of Ulthuan. So, so the, there was kind of a character behind the Wyvern Rider, it, but it never became a named character. Yeah, that's right. It was. Oh, um, it was named. It was named in the story. Um, the, all the literature that was kind of building up to that um, original release in '92. Gotcha, gotcha. So there are actually two new models coming out, um, which I was pretty uh, stoked to see. Um, I don't know if you were going to get to those, Tim. I'm kind of stealing your thunder here, if you were. No, no, I, no um, idea, mate. So, so there's two new uh, Forge World resin, mm. um, which has uh, Forge is Forge World resin just another name for fine cast, or did they actually <laughs> change the resin formula? I'm not sure. From what I've heard, I think it's a lot better. Okay, uh, well that's good. I I, I haven't touched it uh, touched a fine cast model in ten years. And I haven't certainly haven't ordered a resin model, but um, so they look they look like beautiful sculpts. One is a, a new black orc war boss with a great weapon, uh, and the other one is a named character. So there's a spoiler for a new named character, the deeply weird orc shaman Ogdru's Swamp Digger. So uh, uh, Ogdru's comes with a very cool little uh, night goblin. Um, assistant who's got a cauldron stirring it with a big bone. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool looking pair of models. I'm uh, like, like so many of the orcs, uh, so characterful. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, orcs and goblins are next. What do we think is going to come after that? My guess would probably be dwarves um, based on, well, the front cover of the rule book, which has the orc goblin shield mirrored from each other, I believe as well as the historical enmity between orcs and goblins and dwarves. Uh, I believe that dwarves will probably be next. I don't know if they'll have a similar model range and a named character drop soonish, but we'll see after the orcs and goblins arcane journal comes out. Yep. Uh, Tim, what do you think? Um, I haven't got much um, to say about dwarves for uh, <laughs> obvious reasons, but um, believe I've been led to believe anyway that High elves are on the horizon. Ah, all right. Um, we've seen um, pictures of the like two thousand and one plus version of those elves yep. in a lot of the pictures. Um, there's a number of the plastic swordmasters that we've we've all seen. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're coming out. Um, I don't know if this is actual speculation or. Hopeful speculation, but um, the metal Eltharian has to be coming back. Eltharian? Yes. Is he the dragon rider? Um, that would be Tyrion. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. It's Eltharian the Grim, right? They all look yeah. the same to me. <laughs> Do you mean they all look the same? Pointy-eared. Oh, no, hang on. Wait. Hang on. Sorry. <laughs> Keep going. Right. Um, blue. They're blue. They're blue. They're the wrong <laughs> sorts of elves. They've all got armor on. They've all got helmets that are that are... Very pointy, and uh, it suits their pointy head. I think that's really what it is, right? That the high elves just have uh, uh, way too much angst for me. Um, I like my wood elves; they're much for a start less pointy helmets. Right, fewer, fewer pointy helmets. The helmets are less pointy. Well, that also, yes. I think they have um, this. If they are wearing helmets, then it was the same war gear. 
<laughs> right? Similar. But, but the pointiness of it is, right. is, is, is what I'm trying to get across to you. It's oh, like, see. right. Superior elves don't have pointy heads. Uh, yeah, okay, that totally <laughs> makes sense. Um, not quite sure where to go from there. Uh, should we talk about dark elves, maybe? Um, <laughs> and their lack of existence in the old world? Yeah, we're going to lighten the tone of it by talking about dark elves and <laughs> assassins and, you know, rivers of blood and, you know. So, so Eltharian, let's get back on point here. Yeah, from what I know of Eltharian, um, from exclusively Total War, uh, which is where I get all of my lore from, uh, is uh, that he really doesn't like Grom the Paunch, and they had a big thing with each other, from what I know. Oh, yeah, they, uh, it was Dan the Vic. They had this huge Barney. It was over several different episodes. Okay. Um, uh, that's, an, that's an EastEnders reference that is totally lost <laughs> on, on my American-raised uh, teenage son. <laughs> it's true. It's a British right. soap opera. Anyway, keep yeah. going. Um, I think we kind of referred to it earlier if... Um, I think Grom did get mentioned. I think we were talking about him uh, just before we went live. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're quite right. Um, Eltharian. Um, Eltharian's dad was actually killed by Grom. Oh. Huh. Um, in the early stages of the invasion, Eltharian himself was actually, I think he was battling Dark Elves at the time and was at death's door until the ghost of his father returned and said, basically avenge me. So, um, so what's the Eltharian model look like? I, I'm trying to remember um, it. And it's he's got the big winged helmet, right? It, they all have big winged and pointy helmets. Sorry, keep right, going. So, the wings hide the pointiness of his, though. So um, just, just to narrow it down a little bit, um, he's the elf who wears scale armor. Right, just like the rest, yeah. <laughs> uh, does sure. have an impressive helmet. And he rides a griffin. Ah, well, so. I can maybe forgive him for riding the griffin. Ah, uh, is is it the oh so it's I, the metal it's the start, metal griffin? Yes, it started life as um, elf griffin rider, and then I think an episode of not an episode, an issue of White Dwarf later actually got his full name. Right. He okay. So I'm looking at a picture of it now. His yeah. his wings are the wings on his helmet. I think he could almost fly just from those. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind needing the. Uh, Never mind needing the griffin's wings. Those are pretty impressive. Um, Stormwing, apparently, I'm learning, is the name of his griffin. Yeah. I mean, he started out as a regular griffin, but when Eltharian pointed his sword at him, he became Stormwing. I have the power! (laughs) Uh, Oh, look, he's brandishing a lance and a sword. Neat. Very 1990s. So so you think we're going to get a re-release of that and not the... uh, the it was was it the island of blood uh, island yeah the island of blood kit um did have a griffin rider in plastic i've uh, got one you have yes i i made him into a uh an honorary wood elf i can see that happening yeah but um, he's still got a pointy helmet anyway keep going <laughs> i think it's it's more hopeful because um because of obviously because of where we are in the timeline um eltharian might be an elven teenager at this point. Um, Interesting. I believe his father would still be alive, um, being the warden of Tory of Resi, if I'm saying that right. Don't um, ask me. None of the elf names are pronounceable. If it's not yeah. Athel Lauren, you know, I'm kind of lost after that. 
Fair enough. Um, <laughs> what about um, the Ever Queen's Kingdom? Whatever. Queendom. The Queendom? Yeah. I believe that is the elven realm. That Avalorn? Was Avalorn? Avalorn. That's right. Indeed. That's yeah. most similar to the wood elven realms. In fact, there's treemen that quite happily wander around there. Yeah, but the reason your high elves can't have treemen is because the treemen won't go on the ships. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. It's just like day one of... It's because the ships are made of wood. That's right. Yeah, like, they just object to it. Mm. It's like, oh, yeah. Now, dwarf ships, they'll go on those. <laughs> yeah, until they find out how they're powered. Yeah. They use coal. It's fine. <laughs> coal. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's right, because what dwarf is going to go and chop down a tree when they could just dig it out of the rocks instead? Exactly. It's much more dwarfy. <laughs> okay, I think we've wandered off topic quite a bit here. Very slightly. <laughs> quite a lot. I love it. Um, okay, so... Um, so Prince Tyrion will probably get a re-release in metal because he's riding a dragon. Right. Um, I love that model. Like, of all the old Hammer models I know, I love that old metal Tyrion model. Yeah, I think they did two versions, well, if I remember correctly. If they're doing Tyrion, will they do Teclas? Am I on no, the, I'm they... the wrong prince, haven't I? Um, it's Prince Imric who Imric. rides the dragon. He's Kalidor. Uh, yes, I also had the wrong one yeah. in my head. Um <laughs> But yeah, um, Tyrion well, and Teclas. Imric doesn't wear the uh, the big pointy helmet either, does he? No, he's got... Um, Luscious flowing locks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he might be acceptable as an elf then. He wears mm. full plate armor and has a shield and a lance. Okay. Hmm. So so you think Imric might be coming back? Possibly. I mean, if they're bringing back um, the Orc Shaman as a maid to order, um, it makes sense that somebody from that era on the elven side would be back um possibly um the dwarfs too there was that fellow who had a book of grudges thorgrim yeah yeah i think he even had a name um <laughs> i don't think my orcs got around uh shaving his beard off but it's still time so here's an interesting tidbit uh in august of 2018 uh they released Imric, Malekith, and the Sisters of Twilight dragon kits as made-to-order kits um, for a limited time. Um, so uh, they've clearly still got the the tooling and, and all of the stuff for them, and they've done it in the last few years, right, since, uh, since the end time. So it's that would suggest that those three kits are... I mean, it suggests to me that those three kits are, are highly probable. Yeah. They're also all elves, so they could be alive still. Yeah, yeah. that's true. And I think if it's the dragon, that probably would have also been sculpted by uh, Trish Carden. They're all Trish. Yep. Yeah. She sculpts great miniatures. The Art of War. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, cavalry and the tactics that you'd want to use uh, with them on the battlefield. Specifically... Uh, about uh, things like hammer and anvil, which is a term I've heard thrown around a lot. I'm not super familiar with it myself. Uh, if you mind just giving a general explanation of that. Sure. So uh, hammer, okay, let's start with the hammer and anvil and then we kind of uh, talk about kind of cavalry's role in that. Uh, so as you might expect, uh, right, the anvil in the blacksmiths is the thing that gets hit. 
and the thing that's doing the hitting is the hammer. Uh, so on the battlefield, that principle applies just the same. You have one unit that uh, is your anvil, which is, is being hit, and then another unit, uh, which is your hammer unit, um, which is uh, going to try and hit the thing that has hit you. Um, and so your, your goal there is to kind of crush uh, the enemy unit um, between, between two units. Um, and most frequently this happens with a, uh, a unit that uh, gets, you have an anvil unit that gets charged in the front and then uh, the enemy unit gets charged in the flank by a cavalry unit that is the hammer. So that's the classic setup. Now, how do you actually set these things up and, and what are the units that you use it for? Um, I, I can go into a little bit of that. Um, I, I think to do that exhaustively for every uh, army would take forever. Um, and the, the frank answer is that this tactic is so common and you'll use it so much that, that uh, situationally anything can be your anvil and your hammer depending on uh, you know, what it is that you're seeing. So uh, I'm going to focus on uh, just a couple of examples to try and kind of make this uh, make this work in a reasonable amount of time. Um, so so ample units uh, uh, come in, broadly speaking, two main types. One is a unit that can that is super tough and well armored and can really take a hit. Um, so uh, imagine, for example, dwarf iron breakers. Well, I guess dwarves aren't a great example. Uh, well, dwarf iron breakers are an excellent anvil unit. That is for sure, right? Um, uh, or you know, anything anything with a two up or a three up armor save is generally a pretty good anvil unit. Um, if you don't have a lot of toughness in the unit, um, we'll come to that in a second. So, but like black orcs, um, they're probably a pretty good anvil unit. Chaos warriors. Chaos Warriors, yep. Uh, um, um, in Wood Elves, it would be maybe like the Treekin, who are tough five. Um, uh, trolls with a, a regen save. You know, these sorts of things that that were pretty good at, at, if something charges them, you're not, your first expectation is that they will survive the charge and not run away. That That's kind of the def defining point of the Amble. Um, the other type of anvil that you can have is just a big horde of bodies. Um, and you know that you're not going to run away just because there's so many guys right there on the battlefield. So you got to have a bunch of static combat resolution. Uh, in other words, you're going to want to have your banner. You're going to want to have, uh, you know, plus two rank bonus, plus two rank bonus, ideally be close order. So you get that extra plus one, maybe even have your battle standard bearer in there for another plus one. Maybe even put the war banner on it for another plus one, right? So you want to have a bunch of static combat resolution so that when something does come in and hit you, those first five wounds uh, are just getting them to the point of being even with your static combat resolution. So, so that's your uh, skeleton warriors and your gores and that kind of thing. Uh, yep, uh, goblins, uh, really anything where it's a cheap amount of points. Uh, and they're usually core units, so it's a good core allocation use. Um, and you don't particularly want to spend a ton of points on on adding extra bells and whistles to the unit. Um, 
Although night goblins are an interesting exception because of just how many cool bells and whistles you can add to that unit. Um, bells, whistles, and flying chains. Flying chains and and uh, nets. goblins attached to the other end of them. Yeah, and all sorts of stuff. Okay, so uh, so those those are your two types of units: uh, uh, tough and well armored, or horde of bodies. Those are your your two kind of anvils. Um, and so then to set up the hammer and anvil technique, um, you got to have your anvil in the right place and you got to have your hammer in the right place. Um, so the anvils tend to be slower moving, less maneuverable, um, uh, you know, wider frontage or whatever else. Um, and so your placement of your anvil on the battlefield will determine a lot about how successful you can be with this tactic. Um, Typically, what I'm looking for when I'm putting down an anvil unit is I'm looking for uh, where's the cover on the battlefield? Where's the um, where's the terrain pieces? Because uh, my opponent is going to want to have, uh, you know, movement channels for their troops. And so if I can bring my anvil up beside a piece of terrain, that effectively helps me go, okay, well, one flank is protected by terrain and I can angle the troops in such a way that, you know, they're kind of self-protecting their own other flank and taking a, a charge on the front. And I'm blocking my opponent from moving further without charging me because I'm putting my, my guys in his way. Make sense so far? Yep. Um, so, so the point of the anvil is to kind of, get in there and, and be a road bump, but you, you want to kind of protect your flank from being charged because you don't want your opponent to do their, <laughs> their hammer and anvil technique on you. Um, so that's the setup for the anvil. And now I can finally get to your point about the cavalry, which is the, the, the hammer side of things. The fun bit. The fun, <laughs> the fun bit. And it really is the fun bit, that's for sure. With cavalry units, um, I'm, I'm focusing... In terms of hammer, uh, your cavalry units are typically heavy cavalry um, or monstrous cavalry uh, because what you're looking for is damage output. Um, you know, your light cavalry uh, aren't really going to bring that pain in the same way. Um, so, you know, I uh, just a quick uh, flip through some of the different armies. For for high elves, that would be like your dragon princes. Um, for Bretonians, it's your Grail knights. Uh, for Empire, uh, I think probably the demigriff knights are the most suitable. Um, for I think uh, inner circle knights would also work though. They they would work absolutely, and in fact, like I said earlier, any unit can can be a pretty uh, good hammer. Um, but if you're looking for you know what's the kind of the the optimal or, or, you know, the, the, the biggest and killiest living thing. the dream. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the thing with the, what you're looking for is, um, a high number of attacks and a very devastating charge. Um, because, uh, the, the outcome that you're going for is if you think about the, the order, the sequence in which things will have happened, um, on your opponent's turn, your opponent will have charged your anvil. And then on your subsequent turn, your hammer is going to come in from the side or the rear and uh, your hammer and anvil units will both get to attack, but your hammer will presumably be going first 
and uh, be doing a lot of damage, right? So that's that's the goal is now it doesn't matter if your opponent has a ton of static combat resolution, you're coming in the flank, so you're disrupting them so that they don't get that static combat resolution, and uh, you're doing a ton of damage so that you're breaking them in one go. Um, so uh, that's the, the goal, and the setup with the cavalry is then where do you put them? Um, and that's obviously very battlefield dependent, but some simple rules of thumb, and, and they're kind of obvious. Um, if you've ever watched any real battles or, or, or read about real battles, um, obviously the scale we're playing at here is a lot smaller. Six uh, guys rather than 600. Right. But the, the effect is very similar. Um, you're going to put your cavalry on the flank, right? Um, so if I have uh, set up a couple of anvil units uh, and you know my big blocks of infantry uh, in the center, uh, coincidentally, this is you know good place for them to go because it's easiest for them to move around and uh, gives them the most options in terms of being able to go and claim objectives or whatever else. Then I'll put my fast-moving cavalry uh, out on the far side. So so you know uh, don't be afraid to go like right the way out to the edge of the table. Even sometimes um, just be an inch or two off the edge whatever works in terms of the scenery, because you've got a couple of things you're going to have to keep in mind. First is, uh, if you're making a charge through terrain, you're going to get slowed down, right? Uh, not only are you going to get slowed down, you're going to have to make dangerous terrain tests. And you're going to be disrupted yourself. Right, exactly. Unless, you know, you have special rules that get around that. But typically, cavalry want to be making a charge across open terrain, uh, just like in real life. Uh, Crazy how that happens, right? Yeah. So um, uh, think about, okay, if I'm putting them on the left flank versus the right flank, um, they're at, they're, at some point they're going to they're move up the battlefield, they're going to make a turn, and then they're going to charge across into the flank of another unit. Where on the battlefield is that most feasible to happen? And uh, try to set your cavalry up so that they can make that uh make that charge a lot of the time and i think we should probably do a section on the deployment uh um on deployment in the art of war but a lot of the time people treat deployment as um really just part of game setup where it's like okay i'll put a guy you put a guy oh you put an infantry unit i'll put an infantry unit right uh deployment to me is is like one of the most important parts of the game part of what i've heard about warhammer and a lot of war games in general is half the game is one army building and then deployment or actually more like 70% of the game was won uh, there because of just how incredibly important it is and how hard it is to come back from a you know a disadvantage during that phase. Yeah, I would agree. I would say it's at least half the game. Um, I think uh, if you... Uh, assuming you've chosen a, a, a reasonable list, um, if you deploy badly, um, you you are very unlikely to be able to come back and get a complete victory. Um, I think that's that's definitely true. Um, I think, uh, and I think that's why some of those uh, scenarios where the deployment gets all messed up and you don't have uh, total control over it, which is again, a very realistic scenario, um, makes for some uh, you know interesting tactical games and frustrates other people because they have a battle plan that they like and they can't then <laughs> just just do that battle plan. 
This game where you roll dice makes you roll dice? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, you're, the thing to be aware of with the, with the hammer kind of uh, going on is y you do need to uh, give your cavalry the best opportunity to be able to make that flank charge. And so if you think about your forward arc, um, you know, you've seen the diagrams in the books and it's a, it's a, you've, you've got the rectangle and then you've got the arcs go off at 45 degrees. So um, if you have positioned your cavalry at a 45 degree angle on the, the table, that means they can charge directly in front of them. Like uh, if you imagine the table from your own perspective, you know, you've got a north, south, east and west and you've got them pointing northeast. That means they can charge both north and they can charge east. Um, and so that gives you the best kind of flexibility for being able to uh, stop something that's coming up the battlefield that's going to cause you problems or be a hammer and charge, you know, straight uh, across eastward across the battlefield and, and hit something in the flank. So you rarely you rarely want to have your cavalry unit pointing straight north, keeping those angles uh, uh, open are going to be very important. Um, so so again, coming back to deployment, uh, you might put your cavalry unit right in the bottom left corner, right the, the southwest corner, have them pointing northeast, and then have them move in their first turn with a march um, at that 45 degree angle. Um, that's a pretty, uh, that's a totally legitimate thing to do. Um, but it's very, and I can't stress this enough, it's so terrain dependent. Um, what you got to start looking at is when you look at the battlefield, think about anvils going there, hammers coming here. How do I make that happen and deploy your, your units accordingly? Okay, that's hammer and anvil. Do we want to go into other stuff about cavalry or how else? What else do you want to talk about? I did want to talk about other things about cavalry. I wanted to talk about uh, light versus heavy versus monstrous cavalry and their different kind of roles. Sure. As well that. as uh, skirmishing cavalry, because there is quite a bit of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and cavalry with uh, ranged weapons. Okay. Just all the different kinds. Okay. Well, um, what do you know about light cavalry? Um, tell me kind of where your, where your understanding is today. They're not as punchy as heavy cavalry, and they die to shooting easier. Um, but they're cheaper, uh, and they generally are better at moving around easier. So they can move up the battlefield through cover, that kind of thing, as well as, like, they're better for harassing war machines, from my understanding, and sneaking into the flanks of things where a larger, slower unit would not be able to. Yep. I think historically, light cavalry has been incredibly effective um i think the romans suffered against um light cavalry who would typically uh, you've got roman centurions moving very slowly up the battlefield light cavalry would goad them into trying to charge they'd shoot off a few arrows and then scarper um you might have heard of um genghis khan I, I, it is known. <laughs> and uh, he was responsible for bringing light cavalry to Europe and back. Um, well, so horse archers are, in my mind at least, different than light cavalry. Uh, 
I count them more in the skirmish cavalry kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, where their job is to harass uh, from range, whereas light cavalry, in my mind, are meant to sneak into the side of things. Like you mentioned earlier with the Romans and the Numidian cavalry that they faced in the Punic Wars and things, uh, they would break through the flanks and sneak around the sides, then charge into the back of the uh, of the Roman formations. But they wouldn't, uh, you know, throw spears or anything from their uh, from horseback. Uh, I think those are two different battlefield roles. Yeah, uh, they are, and they they both get labeled under light cavalry. Um, and so, so I think I think uh, your point earlier is probably uh, is probably a good one in that there's the skirmish cavalry and then the the open order cavalry, and some um, units can do both. And but you're going to have to pick which role you're going to play them in, um, because uh, e- even even if you can you can change the role um, mid game, but you're going to have to choose at least at the start of the game. Are they in skirmish formation or are they in open order formation? Um, OK, so let's talk about that. So so uh, I think um, the easiest one to think about is the is the the. Uh, Mongolian horse archers, right? The the uh, right up in front of the enemy, shoot them, and when they charge you, you flee, right? Um, this is this is the fire and flee um, special rule and the feigned flight special rules, right? Uh, where you you are uh, you're there to uh, a uh, goad out frenzied troops into making a and impetuous troops and impetuous troops right into making a charge um you're also there to um kind of just give the middle finger to your opponent a little bit it's like haha you can't catch me the last game of eighth i played i get i think was against your wood elves and i was playing vampire counts uh on tabletop simulator i think uh and you no, you're playing high elves and you brought some illyrian reavers right up next to one of my units and i uh, charged them, they ran away. It was the most frustrating thing ever. It's so incredibly annoying to fight light cavalry. It it is for sure, and uh, uh, I'll apologize for that. But that doesn't mean <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. Uh, so I think that those types of units, uh, generally, the way that I want to run them is um, minimal number of uh, models in the unit, which is usually five. Um, they are. Um, they have they have two roles. Uh, one is is the sort of classic uh, chaff role, um, which is to be able to um, you know do the things we were just talking about, pull out frenzied troops, um, etc., uh, and to uh, hmm, this is this is actually kind of relevant to the hammer and anvil we were just talking about. Uh, to position themselves to take a charge from another unit in order to give you an advantageous charge on your next turn. So, uh, if you can imagine, um, you know, we were we were talking about um, setting up the the hammer and the anvil. Um, you your opponent isn't actually coming over to engage with your anvil unit. Um, and is trying to charge, uh, I don't know, some war machine you've got, um, which is vulnerable troops. So you bring your light cavalry over in front of the, um, in front of your opponent's 
a big unit that's moving down the battlefield. Um, and because they have a great maneuverability, uh, you uh, rotate them and position them in such a way that um, they can't not charge. Um, really, they can't really move anywhere without charging. But when they do charge and they have to close the close the gap, uh, it points them in the direction of uh, you know your other unit that you want them to get engaged with. Um, Again, and, annoying. Right. Um, or, you know, it, 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 light cavalry are very much for trying to control the battlefield. Like that, that's, that's their purpose. Um, they're not going to kill anything or they're going to kill very little or they'll kill very little things. Um, they, uh, their job is, is to provide you with maneuverability. So if you think about them then in their other role where they're, you know, more in, um, more in their close combat role, that's where they're going and and hunting down those war machines in the in the the back of your opponent's deployment zone. Um, they're they're looking for wizards. Um, so that you know if you if your opponent has a wizard in a bunker of of infantry, um, you can get your your highly maneuverable unit to charge into that. Uh, that infantry block and try and put you know at least two if not three bases in uh base-to-base -base contact with the wizard so that you can get three to four attacks on the wizard who you know often has no armor um and and you know, not great weapon skill and yeah. right and, and and is vulnerable um assuming they didn't bring any assailment spells well, I mean, e even still, right? You're you're trying to kill them before they get the opportunity to get one off because you're charging, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I think uh, the light cavalry, um, their job is is uh, taking care of, of small units that are lightly armored. Um, so your your opposition's light cavalry uh, swarms. Um, things that are there to kind of uh, control the battlefield um, or uh, to control the battlefield, right? Um, and so so you don't want to put too many points into them um, because because their job is kind of to die um, or to at least uh, um, be put into a position where they're likely to die. Uh, unlike your hammer unit, which is going to have a ton of points into it, and its job is to survive. Um, okay, so so that's a kind of a very high level look at at light cavalry. Um, heavy cavalry kind of talked about as as being a hammer, um, and monstrous cavalry the same. Um, the other role that they can play though is they can they can actually be that tough unit that can take the punch. Um, so there's there's uh, especially with the counter charge rule that is now in the game. Um, there is no reason why you can't just have them deployed in the center if they've got counter charge, especially because uh, then when your opponent comes in, um, you're going to still count as having charged. And usually that means a plus one or plus two to your strength because of whatever weapons you're armed with. Um, but uh, as, as I think we all know and all hope for flank charge is definitely better rear charge is best um so uh you know putting them out on the flank and letting them loop all the way around and come in turn three totally legitimate 
Assuming they don't get shot off the board or hit in the side or anything like that. Well, I think hammer cavalry, especially like what we're talking about, very hard to shoot off the board, especially in this edition where shooting is quite toned down. Um, I think, you know, you're first off, you're on the flank. So, you know, a bow is only a 24 inch range, right? Um, you know, the longest sort of infantry ranged weapon is 30 to 32 inches. Um, so you're not really thinking about, you know, being able to, to have concentrated fire on a unit like that when it's out on the flank. Um, yeah, your next kind of worst thing is taking like a bolt thrower, uh, especially if they catch you sort of flank on. Um, so don't expose your flank to a bolt thrower. Hot tip number one. Um, Write that one down later. <laughs> yeah. Um, thinking about other things like stone throwers, template weapons, that sort of stuff. I mean... Again, being out on the flank gives you the opportunity to to hide things a bit better. Um, indirect fire can be used, but that's more likely to scatter and miss you. So I'm I'm not too worried about about a heavy cavalry unit being shot off. Um, it's much more likely to happen to your light cavalry unit, um, and that's why you should just bank on 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 those guys being dead at the end of the game. Um, you know, if you think about how the game is won and lost, uh, you know, obviously there's there's objectives and, and different scenarios and so forth. But a lot of the game is about uh, what did you kill and what survived. So you want um, to have the units that are uh, likely to die and intending to die to be as low an amount of points as you possibly can. Uh, and the ones that you want to survive and expect to survive to have as many of your points in them as you can uh, in order to to try and uh, you know keep that point swing uh, in your favor make sense yep so the last the last interesting type that only exists in the world of fantasy uh, is flying cavalry um, and and I think you know flyers kind of deserve their own art of war but uh in the context of cavalry flying cavalry tend to be the light cavalry type um and do that sort of role and do it really well because they can ignore cover and um, there's a couple of exceptions that are the heavy cavalry type and do it exceptionally well because they can ignore cover um <laughs> Uh, I'm thinking about like the Peg Knights, for example, Pegasus Knights in the Bretonian army, um, who can now form up in a lance formation if you want them to. Um, so, you know, they can be the light uh, skirmishy type cavalry um, or, or then they can reform and, and become a, a hitting machine. Um, that'll be interesting to see if it ever works. Um, but, uh, you know, typically the... the uh, the flying cavalry is falling into one of those two camps and and really the flight is just uh helping it with maneuverability all right um i actually wanted to talk about first charge because that kind of has a similar effect to flank charges uh in that it disrupts your opponent it does yeah that's an interesting that is an interesting an interesting point so i haven't i hadn't given that any thought so off the top of my head a hot take um i think that makes for an amazing double charge uh, in the first round. Like uh, it, it, if their first charge 
Um, uh, if you are able to charge an opponent's unit with something that has first charge and another unit, um, you're kind of doing the hammer and anvil at the same time. Um, and that can even both be in the front as well. Yeah, double charges are all right. Exactly, double charges are always good. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, first charge. I haven't uh, because it's a new rule. I haven't really started to think about what that might mean in terms of changing strategy. Oftentimes, it's on your hammer units that you want anyway. So you've got your monstrous and heavy cavalry that all have first charge just due to the force behind their charge. Right, and that makes sense. Um, so the units that again, we're, at the end of the day, uh, there's 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 elements of rock paper scissors to to these Warhammer battles, uh, a more like uh, it, you know this unit going into that unit uh, is very likely that you know unit X will win right uh, you know that's the rock paper scissors part, um, so you want to put that that first charge unit, um, you know if you can get that into the unit that has the big static combat resolution, right? If they're if they've brought any hordes, or or you know even um, even the tar pit units that some uh, armies bring, right? Um, if uh, we dip into the legacy armies for a bit, like the zombies of vampire counts, Skaven slaves. Uh, well, they're gone from the game. Are they? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, so uh, clan rats then. Clan rats. Yep. Yeah, uh, goblins. You know anything where there's there's you can kill them all day, but you're only getting two or three points a model for each one that you're killing. Um, that is a great thing to kind of disrupt and try and uh, wipe off the table um, by by eliminating their static combat res. Um, hmm. Yeah, that that's cool. First charge is a really neat ability. I really want to give it a try on the battlefield. We'll have a talk about special rules, I think, in a future Art of War. No doubt. <laughs> Especially once we've got a few more games under our belt. Any. Um, yeah, any. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, that's going to be happening next weekend. We've got three games coming up, so we'll talk about that uh, in the next episode, I guess. Yeah, it'll be very exciting. The Hobby Horse. Just wanted to talk about a little bit about um, collecting and painting cavalry. Uh, just how to get started doing that and what you should do once you, you know, have your cavalry. Right. So following on from last week where I lectured everyone on why you need to buy and paint 100 infantry <laughs> until you are bored of painting infantry and give up the hobby. But um, moving on to the slightly more interesting thing of cavalry, I think some of the remarks I made last week still stand. So you can get some great deals from... Perry's and Warlord, if you're getting any of the historic adjacent armies like Bretonia, the Empire. Um, Mantic also worth a mention as well. Um, as are War Games Atlantic, who do some great deals on cavalry. Um, North Star's Oathmark range, they've um, started their own cavalry, so they've got just released are the Elven Cavalry. Um, the expertly named human cavalry to go alongside their human <laughs> infantry. Um, As we all know, there's only one kind of human, right? Well, absolutely. <laughs> um, these kind of bear a resemblance to Dark Ages guys. So if you've, if you've got a way of incorporating that into your version of... Um, I'd probably go with Bretonia rather than Empire, but 
given the fact that the Empire has dudes with beards and hammers. Um, yeah, I mean, we're actually 500 years in the past, so... Yeah, I think I think in terms of uh, cavalry models, it's certainly a lot easier to get ones on horses. Uh, so if 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 your cavalry happens to ride horses, you you've got a lot of alternate miniatures you can look at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's worth pointing out at the time of recording, there is um, currently not a lot of stuff available direct from Games Workshop. Yeah. Still, um, still only the original Britonia Tomb Kings releases. It's all that's come out so far. Yeah. But, um, so if you actually get your infantry and cavalry, then you've probably got enough to start playing the game. All right. Um, you've got a foundation to actually build upon from there to start including things like war machines, heroes, monsters, and things that Go bump in the night. <laughs> but, um, anyway, moving slowly on. Um, if it comes to painting, um, did I mention painting last time? I think you might have a little bit. I mean, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's worth talking about um, to create a production line. So what that means is, in essence, you will be paint, um, assembling a small number of models, say five, and then getting an undercoat done on them. And then once you've done that, you leave them, assemble another five, do the undercoats on them. And if that has taken up, say, a couple of hours of your painting, then you can let that dry, move on to the next step, which is, for me anyway, I'm not going to talk for anyone, but for me, I like to put the basing material on first as part of the undercoat. Um, a lot of people do it at the last. I find that gets really messy. Traditionally, as um, a lot of people would say, put modelling sand and then dry brush it various shades of brown. That means that dry brushing various shades of brown are going to end up on your model's feet and shins. Works right. if you're in a desert, but otherwise... Uh... Yeah, and you know, then the swear words start happening. So getting that done first... Um, do not, under any circumstances, put your static grass on at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> right, leave that bit till last. Leave picking out the funny skulls or whatever diorama bits till whenever. But the actual um, bases of the base, is that a word now? It is. Um, do that first. Then what I like to do next is metal. Um, for similar reasons is that um, again, a lot of people, apart from the non-metallic metal crew, um, there's some words I might say about them later, but um, if you are going to be painting um, metal, that's traditionally going to be like going from black, dry brushing various metal colours like um, gold, silver, gun metal. Um, again, you will be messy, so you're going to be getting bits of silver and gold which is not going to look that great on your orc skin or empire um, roughs and stuff like that. That's not going to be kosher. Well, and also uh, those paints have um, metallic flecks in the pigment. Yep. And so 
you know, if you're doing those all at the same time and then you clean up afterwards, like the, the water will have metallic flecks in it. So it's good to kind of get rid of all of that water before you start painting, you know, any, any non-metal color. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you are going for that clean style, yeah. um, I've got to sh do a shout out to the guy who actually taught me how to paint. Actually, he taught the guy who taught the guy who taught me how to paint. One of the things he said was never actually change your paint water. <laughs> but he's a lot of his models um, had a a quality that looked like they've actually been in a fight. So having, you know, not pristine whites, blues or any other color with all kinds of crap in it. Actually, he make, found a way of making that work. I have not managed to do it myself. Because so, he changed your paint water? Yes. <laughs> yes, because I changed my paint water. Um, on the topic of metals, uh, should you wash your metals at this point before doing anything else? Or should you save that for if later? If you're using what I do, then yeah. Um, so it's uh, no real secret, but... I mean, if you want to send in a donation of uh, 20 quid, <laughs> or could we put this behind a paywall? Keep anyway, going. Anyway, um, so what I do is I start black and then dry brush with the darkest version of metal. So if you're doing, say, a typical silver, that is going to be bolt gun metal, which no one knows what it is anymore. And all the way up to, I think, rune fancy silver which people actually do know what it is then you put on a wash the wash uh, for a lot of people is known oil right um for some people it is the army painter uh, um, dark wash you could also incorporate um the standard wash because that's a bit more brown depending on what you want to have your effect as has these regiment literally just got their swords and they've marched out today if you're using a bit of brown in it it is because they have been in a fight um they've not been polishing their swords so to speak now these washes are um they're ink washes um like they're they're not they're not paint right they're they're a different yeah they're a different uh, medium different medium altogether yeah yeah um you want to leave them i leave them overnight um I don't believe that there's an exact science to it, but because we're talking about art, <laughs> right? Um, so you wash the metals and then yeah. leave them overnight before wash you the do metals, anything further? Leave them overnight. Actually, if you are going to do anything further, build another five models. Right. Undercoat them, right? Keep that process going. So eventually what your painting table will look like is that there will be five sprues or, a, or so, There'll be a assembled squad. There'll be an assembled and undercoated squad, and then there'll be a assembled, undercoated, and waiting pa partially to painted. partially painted. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, the other tip is that if you don't have access to known oil or army paint to wash or whatever the Vallejo equivalent is, right, you can thin down black. You can put in a dot of blue to give it a bit of a shing. You can put in a dot of brown to keep it down to earth. Um, you can also put in a dot of varnish. Now, at this stage, um, for health and safety reasons, 
if you are putting in a dot of varnish and you're indoors, open a window, right? Strong stuff. Very dangerous you know, dot, yeah. Well, well it's... Um, it's very smelly. It's very smelly, and it always every bottle of varnish, which does exactly what it says on the tin, um, it is it will say using a well ventilated area for yeah. obvious reasons. So you don't want to be. Everyone has seen the jokes about drinking your paint water, right? It no, it's no longer funny drinking <laughs> your paint water if there's varnish in it. Yeah, right. So do yourself a favor, right? If you, if you don't have great ventilation. Um, once you've applied this wash, go outside, have a cigarette, do your lungs a favour. (laughs) But um, at this stage, once you've done all the messy stuff, right, you've left your dude overnight, do another dry brush. Right? Go up from whatever you've ended up with to a brighter colour. And that will give it... So from your washed uh, bolt gun metal to runefang silver, you then wash it, and then you go from runefang silver up to brighter color? Or do yep. you... Oh, absolutely. I mean, it depends how bright you want that sword to be. Yep. But um, this is the equivalent of um, highlighting. Right. An already highlighted model. So you've actually gone from... Um, You've done your shading first. You've put on your base coat. And now you're doing your top highlights. You can then say that that is now done. Um, and, and the reason this is so relevant for cavalry is a lot of the time the model is like 50% metal. Yeah. Right? Especially especially the really heavy cavalry with barding and everything on them. Right? Yeah. Um, I know on painting cavalry, um, you don't have to. Um, but it is an idea to separate the horses from the rider, um, paint the horses and the rider, not entirely separately, but um, at some point you'll it will become really obvious when you'll want to assemble it and you can continue painting it. So something like the horse's eyes, it doesn't really matter if the rider's attached or not. However, from if you're doing the armour of the rider... Um, Horse is going to get pretty annoyed if you've actually got your dry brush metal. Yeah, and it, and it can be tough to get like saddle parts and and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Um, one thing that I've seen um, done pretty well, depending on whether you're uh, if you're a magnetizer or not, right? If you like mm. to magnetize your models, um, but uh, uh, assuming you're not a magnetizer, the, um, putting um, the rider on uh, on a stick on the end, like with a blue tack. So you're seeing in the model, like still be upright, yeah. um, like they're going to be on the on the horse. So you don't have to waste time at like doing the inner legs and, you know, those sorts of things that are definitely going to be covered. But also to give you a, that sort of idea of this is what it's going to look like once it's mounted. Um, and then just the magnetized thing is, well, if you're sticking a magnet up there anyway, you just uh, put the magnet in there and then you can use a, um, a magnetized uh, um, stick or piece of metal to, to hold it up. Yeah. I think also it's probably worth mentioning, um, if you are shoving things up the riders, um, <laughs> that sometimes if you put a wash on, um, having it upright is not a good way to dry. If you can find a way of hanging it upside down, then you're 
probably change the laws of physics, but it will help the uh, wash not pull right at the bottom of the model. And by the time it's dried, um, it should have a slightly more even um, finish if you've found a way of getting it on its side or at an angle. I imagine that'll help a lot for things like uh, full plate armor and things where you've got chinks in the armor where the wash would like to settle, but can't really do that when it's directly up. You can imagine it can get into there much easier if it's upside down or on its side. Um, yeah, um, pretty much. I mean, pooling is the arch nemesis of anyone who uses a wash, and pooling will just happen at the bottom of a model. Um, they have actually gotten a lot better with pre with making these washes and paints since when I were a lad when it were just inks. Oh, back in my day. <laughs> and I think um, inks, what we did back then, this is where I get the dot of varnish, was actually a way of breaking the surface tension of the ink and getting it to flow better. Right. And now we have a lot of fancy different types of mediums to yeah. uh, to mix in with our paints. We're actually kind of spoiled with choice. At some point, we should do a, a hobby horse just about just about paints and, and demystifying some of the different types of things that are out there. Um, I uh, uh, Sorry, I'm going to let you go back to your point. Which I was I totally making forgot. a point. <laughs> 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 no, I think we should um, continue what you were talking about. I think there was probably a, a lot of demystification yep. does need to happen on particularly um, information that you can get online. Yep. Um, as you know, you notice that if anyone is going to be talking about um, paints, it's normally going to be about one of the manufacturer's paints, and it's going to be because said person online has received a sizable box of paint. <laughs> yes. So we're quite happy to be doing a yeah. chat about a sizable donation of a box of paints if anyone out there is listening. But <laughs> um, I think in, in trying to keep everything a bit more real and grounded yeah um, sorry oh the point that i was going to make actually just going back to your your you were talking about pooling um, yeah. with the inks and so forth um one thing that i do when i'm when i'm doing uh washes i use a, a a bigger brush than i would do for painting normally because it can hold a lot of the wash but after i'm done with the wash um uh, i like to rinse the the brush out and dry it out a bit and then I go back over with it and kind of slurp up anywhere that's yep. pooled by by just kind of sticking the brush into it. Yeah, that, that's a, a great tactic. It does work. Um, <laughs> he is the tactics guy. That's his job. <laughs> um, the other thing, I mean, I, I've used smaller brushes to that effect. Um, I mean, this is also where the the second dry brush comes into effect. If it has pooled, you haven't noticed it for whatever reason, you gone out you, you know this might be the 20th model that you've painted today whatever but that second dry brush will help out immensely in those sorts of situations makes sense um I mean, we've spoken quite a lot about armor yep and stuff but um it's probably briefly worth pointing out that um these days you are blessed with contrast paints um, from Citadel, um, speed paint from Army Painter, and whatever the Vallejo equivalent is. I believe they're called Express Paints. Express Paints. Ding. <laughs> so it there's a lot of, particularly on fantasy models, 
details yeah and things that they've sculpted on to make the model great but you might not want to spend ages painting especially on rank and file troops absolutely so things like belts um pouches which seem to be everywhere on a lot of old hammer models yeah and on all the new ones as well there's so many pouches yeah um so getting getting them done um with the speed contrast paint um will actually help you rather than kind of drag on the painting um okay so kind of let me summarize a little bit um to make sure i'm following along so so far we've got we're we're assembling the horse and putting it on the base and putting the uh, base layer of materials on the base. Yep. So like the dirt part. Yep. Um, the rocks, uh, anything that you're going to dry brush potentially. Yep. Uh, all goes on that part you spray. Yep. Uh, then you get your dude, you assemble or at the same time you assemble the rider, um, shove a pole up as Jaxi, if that's what you're going to be doing in terms of, uh, uh, painting and spray that. That's yep. your spray stage. Yep. And then your next stage is your your metals stage. Yep. So you go through, do what you just described uh, for all the metals. And then you've got, so now here's where we're at. And this is why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bringing you here so that <laughs> you can tell us where we're going next. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a horse that has uh, some metal bits painted on him. And I've got a rider with some metal bits painted on him. And then your contrast paints I'm applying to the detail areas of things yep. to make them. So so I've never used a contrast paint in my life. So I've only uh, just started myself. Okay. So, right. so like, tell me about them because, because this is a, this is a learning exercise here. Um, in short, um, they're good fun. Okay. Um, it's midway between a wash and a, a regular paint uh so so back in the day it used to be popular to dip miniatures uh into there were certain types of paint that would highlight details and and give you a shade and and it was kind of like i don't know it was just called dip and you literally just dip it in yeah that was the um army painter method um right is that a predecessor to these sort of contrast paints um perhaps okay um I wasn't actually present for those discussions. I think I was <laughs> I was outside um, painting the model or spraying at that time. But um, essentially, um, what a contrast paint will tell you it is, is that you only ever need one coat. Okay. Um, I don't actually believe that. Sure. Um, and I mean, I paint unconventionally anyway. Um, I did experience... I did experiment with um, the dips, but I use a brush because dipping something in a tin, all right, fair enough. But then getting it out of the tin and shaking it, yeah. right? <laughs> where is this shake going to go? It's not going to go anywhere good, and it's not going to help your painting at all. Yeah, all right. It's just going to create cleaning for you. But um, going back to what a contrast paint does is that it will. It will cut out a lot of the work for you. 
so it kind of gives you a shade and a highlight it, all at the same time. Well, it gives you, I'd say it gives you a base coat and a shade. Okay. Um, rather than a base coat and a highlight. Okay. It, they'll tell you it does all three. It might do. Depending yep. on the color and the model, et Absolutely. cetera, et cetera. But, um, okay. We, I, I've got a mental image now. I can work yeah. with that. Yep. And they're also all meant to be applied over like a bone or a white uh, undercoat rather than a black one. Makes sense. So that way the, because uh, they're not fully opaque, so that way the, uh, the undercoat can show through, which means that a lot of people like to do the, uh, I think it's called Zenithal uh, Prime, where they uh, prime it all black and then spray white from the top to make a nice undercoat. Sure. Uh, so that way the uh, areas in shadow will be uh, darker, even without the more paint pooling there. Right, right. Yeah, I've seen that done. I mean, why I think it's relevant more for fantasy armies is that your task, your Herculean task of painting the 200 models that I've insisted that you buy <laughs> has now become a lot is easier. Is it 100 cavalry as well? <laughs> Clearly. Um, You've got to have an, enough no, hammers it's, for it's, the anvils, it's, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it's only 50. Um, Which is 50 horses and 50 riders. Yeah. Well, actually, it will be... 25 complete models, right? 25 horses, 25 riders. Okay. But considering that you want to build an actual army that you want to win battles, because um, <laughs> you're going to need um, both heavy and light cavalry, and that covers both, and also include cavalry with bows, which you would refer to as skirmish cavalry, uh, spear cavalry. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, getting um, getting the models actually uh, finished is the main goal. Right. So getting the contrast paints on them, getting them done in a production line will actually help out as opposed to sat painting one miniature from start to finish yep. and then picking up another miniature. And doing the same thing. Yeah. And then yeah. looking at where you've gotten after 10 hours of painting, seeing two painted miniatures and nothing else done yeah yeah doing doing the production line what your your table i think i mentioned this earlier will end up looking like is there'll be a number of different models in various stages of completion yep as opposed to not and by the time you have been doing this for about a week you'll actually end up there'll be say 10 complete models and then 40 incomplete models Right. Still looks way better than having 20 complete models and 20, or 30 entirely unpainted models. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I can't emphasize enough um, how good an idea it is to get the primer on the model before you start playing with it. Like, no matter how anxious you are to put it on the table, um, because, because your fingers have a lot of, have a lot of uh, oils on them yeah. naturally, and the oils will sit on the plastic. Like when you pick up the bare plastic, um, and so then when you go to spray paint that plastic later, um, the paint won't be on it. So if you're going to be painting miniatures that you have played with and not primed, you actually have to wash them with soap and water to get the, your oily finger grease off of them. Otherwise, your your primer won't stick. Uh, sorry, that's the voice of experience yep. talking there. <laughs> painting, uh, sorry, playing with unpainted models. I think is a faux pas in a lot of gaming circles i'm pretty sure it's a crime in nottingham <laughs> <laughs> i actually saw someone getting carted off 
um, when I actually visited um, Warhammer World. Oh, yeah? Yeah. After the Starks? Uh, <laughs> I think that's where he ended up. But, um, he was being loaded in the back of a van. And yeah, yeah. At the time. Throw some to, rotten turnips at him. Sent to the non-oil fields. There you go. <laughs> yep. Army boxes are a great way to start collecting a new army. Makes sense. Um, a lot of fun stuff in there. Absolutely. Um, typically, most of them have your infantry and your cavalry covered. Um, they'll also have... And, that, and now you know why. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. They'll also have some cool stuff in there. So there's, undoubtedly you'll have a war machine or two. Um Possibly a monster, an elite, a general in there. And if you have got a box set, um, do yourself a favor right, and buy a couple of um, extra boxes of uh, basic troops as well. So that will give you... So when, you, when you're talking about the box sets, uh, what, do, what do you mean specifically? Um, specifically for... Um, Warhammer the Old World, I'm talking about the ones that have just sold out, so my advice is... The, the, the Battalion boxes, um, I think they're called. Well, there's the the Bretonnia and the is, Tomb Kings box yeah. that also has the rule books in yep. them. And some dice. Right. And then there's the new, uh, as as we think is going to be the template for factions going forward, um, there's the Orc and Goblin Tribes Battalion box. Yep. Um, okay, so those are the boxes you're talking about. These are the ones I am talking about. All right, um, all right, good. These, uh, it's probably worth mentioning that they did have available battalion boxes um, before um, Warhammer went to sleep very briefly. Um, again, great value stuff. It would be great if they return. I think the models are coming back that they had in them. But getting these are imperative to collecting your army. Um, it's worth mentioning that um, Mantic do have army boxes as well. They have like a smaller army box, which is about €85. Euro. Um, I'm not sure that, how that translates into dollars and pounds. Um, it, plus or minus 10%. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, they also have a larger army box, which is about 120 odd euro. Um, you can figure out the pounds for yourself. They typically have roughly double what is in the standard army box that's a few hundred models like in there it's it's a good yeah. deal yeah yeah and and it's really a, a question of personal preference in terms of of you know sculpt but one thing and and i know we're going to talk a little bit about this later one thing you'll have to be wary of is that the base sizes in the, these other systems and other manufacturers will be different than the old world base yeah. sizes yeah, absolutely. Um, if you are collecting a new army, obviously you are going to be having to look into your army books. So whatever manufacturer you've gone for, um, even if it is going to workshop, do look in the army books. Make sure that you're familiar with what it is you're supposed to be putting together. Um, I mean, again, don't stop with the army books. There's, you are allowed to read other books. And they can yes. often provide a really good inspiration for for how your army is going to look. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, read read novels. There's real life influences as well. Might want to creep into how you want your army to look. If you want to play uh, Empire, look at 15th and 16th century Germany stuff. Uh, see if there's anything in there that catches you, or uh, 
Yeah. Similar for Bretonia. Uh, look at 12th century England and France. Hundred Years' War, I think, around that, or is that later? I don't know. I think, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think the the original Bretonian models, as sculpted by the Perry twins, were pretty much based on Hundred Years' War, England and France. But I don't think they were actually separate countries per se. I think that's what the war was about. Yeah, it was all Norman yeah. stuff at that uh, point, um, right? Well, I believe that the King of England at the time was a vassal of the King of France. Ah. And instead of sorting it out between them amicably, the King of England was like, well, no, actually, I think you'll find I'm the King of France. <laughs> yeah, that happened mm. for about 100 years, I, I understand. It's happened yeah. so many times. Like. <laughs> I, think, um, I think it was actually in the long list of titles of whoever was king or queen of England. It was. I'm pretty sure it's one of Cetra's titles now. King like, of France, I, yeah. uh, both King of France and King of England. <laughs> yeah, um, that's why they have him facing off against the Bretonians. Yeah, yeah, uh, well, that's why the Green Knight rowed him last week. That's right. Um, that's what it is. It was totally f- <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cetra has the blessing of the lady, as we all know. <laughs> no, just one really important thing that um, I forgot to mention is that um, if you are building an army, once you've sat down, got your models, got your paints and tools out. Um, really important that you actually put on a podcast (laughs) rather than um, sitting and painting in silence absolutely or a movie or anything that will visually distract you from what you're doing but listen to our dulcet tones as we guide you through your painting experience So we're introducing a new segment here called the Campaign Corner. We're going to be talking about uh, the campaign we're going to be running in our local game store. I am so excited. Yes. Uh, As well as just updating people on how that's going. So we haven't started it yet, but we would like to uh, begin this quite soon. Uh, And the idea we have for it is we're going to be using Mighty Empires, the, I think, 1995 game, is it? I think it's back in 1990. 1990, right. Yeah. Yep. I'd corroborate that. Um, it uh, was actually part of uh, Warhammer's third edition, so it's it's the first box set for third edition, right? And was briefly updated for fourth edition. Yeah, yeah. Back back in the golden era. Yeah. So we're going to be uh, humbering it slightly in order to make it work with the old world. Uh, just you know, changing out. Uh, you gain D6 times 25 points of magic items or a level 20 wizard to uh, all the modern equivalents of things. Yep. Um, and we're going to be having three grand alliances as they are. So, so just a quick note, because not everybody will have heard of oh, Might, yeah, Mighty uh, Empires before. Um, so Mighty Empires, in, in, in game terms, yeah, it's a big, it was a big box set. But what you would see when you're playing is, is a, a hex map of different terrain types, mountains, forests, plains, rivers. And, and it was an empire laid out in front of you and you would fight over these different terrain tiles. Yeah, and the terrain tiles also have things like cities and uh, towns and fortresses and mines and all sorts of fun things on them. Wizard's Tower, mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
all of which are contained within many D6 tables because it's a Games Workshop game. Yep. Um, but we're going to create a map for this for our store. Uh, and then, because we don't want to have every person who wants to participate in this campaign play uh, their own empire, because it would be really difficult to make that happen uh, just due to scheduling issues, we're instead going to have this concept of grand alliances of the three different sort of, uh, you know, alignments of factions that we have in the old world. We're going to have all the good factions, so elves, dwarves, empire, uh, and Bretonia. And Bretonia. Uh, and any of the legacy factions will fall into that as well. So Lizardmen. I think just Lizardmen? Yeah, they kind of left a lot of the evil factions out, didn't they? Yep. Uh, we're going to have the uh, Alliance of Destruction, which is oh, going... Hang on, hang on, hang on. I just want to point out that I'm going to be... Oh, yeah. I'm going to be commanding the, the good alliance here. So clearly, we're going to win. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> clearly. Uh Disagree with you on that, but I'll get to that in a moment. We're going to have the uh, Grand Alliance of Destruction, including uh, Orcs and Goblins. Uh, oh, uh, uh, point of order, point of order. I think it's Death and Destruction. Oh, yes. Death and Destruction. My bad. Yeah. Uh, death and Destruction, which is going to include Orcs and Goblins, uh, the Tomb Kings of Camry, uh, the legacy factions of Vampire Counts and <laughs> Ogre Kingdoms. And Dark Elves. And Dark Elves. And that's going to be commanded by Tim. Anything to say? Well, just that the orcs are going to be the boss, right? And we're going to uh, do a lot of it in, and probably some more it in. And if them two lads don't stop hitting each other, I'll hit them. Um, are, are you brutal but cunning, or cunning but brutal? Uh, well, I sort of hit people. Sometimes when they're not looking, but sometimes when they are looking too much, if you get what I mean. Ah, brutal but cunning, I see. He's a morker. <laughs> uh, but I also think it's worth pointing out that uh, Dark Elves can't do a more evil laugh than the, the vampire accounts. <laughs> uh, and then for me, I'm going to be commanding the Grand Alliance of Chaos, which includes Warriors of Chaos, Demons of Chaos, uh, Chaos Dwarves, Beastmen, and Skaven, because the Horned Rat is a Chaos God of sorts. Uh, and I think that the Ruinous Powers are absolutely going to be victorious over both of you. Uh, no chance. No chance. Uh, didn't I just mention earlier that I have the pointiest helmets <laughs> in the whole alliance? <laughs> Clearly, the one with the pointiest helmet and the biggest wings is going to win. But you forget the precedent in fantasy where chaos always wins. Uh, yeah, this is not the end times here. This is the <laughs> old world. <laughs> well, clearly, none of you are going to win. And you know why? Because I've got the thing that will destroy both of you. What's that? Oh, you've my broadsword. <laughs> broadsword! Fire of wrath. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so I'm very excited about this. I'm going to create a, a digital version of the map uh, and post it on the blog so that, uh, you know, you guys uh, listening can can at least follow along with, with what's going on and kind of see what we're doing. And, and any rules changes that we make, I'll, I'll put on there as well in case you want to uh, run your own kind of similar uh, Mighty Empires campaign. 
Um, and I think the other thing I'm really stoked for is that we're going to be 3D printing the uh, the game pieces. So they're not just flat pieces of cardboard with nice artwork on them. Right. Um, we're going to have a physical uh, map that will be painted that uh, that people can come and see. Uh, and that, you know, hopefully the idea here is like, you know, we've got a few folks in our gaming community that have armies. Um, but we've got probably an equal number of, of interested parties that don't have armies and we kind of want to get everybody to be able to play together in a way that just encourages more gameplay and so having these um you know kind of using the mighty empire's rules to kind of drive a narrative um and and keeping it flexible so that you know oh i've only got 500 points or i've only got 800 points or whatever number you've got made to this point and um, you could still come along on a saturday and and have a blast playing uh, we're actually going to be using uh, the battles in Mighty Empires as they happen on the campaign map as battles that people can play out in the store uh, using right. their own armies Right. at any point throughout the week where we're in between turns. So we're going to essentially play up until we find some battles happening, and then anyone who wants to resolve those battles can play them out in the store, and if they don't want to be resolved, uh, via, or they just can't be, via a tabletop battle, we can just use Mighty Empires rules to finish it automatically. Yep, and, and just keep the keep everything flowing. Yep, probably going to end up doing about one year per week, something like that. Right. Well, uh, one in-game year. In-game year. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the the main thing is that we're we're aiming to kind of run it for sort of like three to four months of of actual playtime. Yeah. Um, which should be enough time for folks to you know, really kind of build up their, their armies and get stuff assembled and painted and get to comfortable with the rules and then kind of have a big kind of culmination at the end of all of this with, you know, a, a series of, of, of high point value battles uh, where we can really decide who, uh, who of you comes in second and who comes in third. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I don't really get the the second and, and third. I think that's that's rhyming slang, isn't it? <laughs> Just one question though: Where are the stunties? And do I get to it? Uh, we do indeed have a couple of stunty players. I think that will be able to uh, provide you with hitting opportunities. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I ain't worried about stunties, but as long as I get to hit them, then I think I'll be all right. So as we move in to wrap things up here, uh, I think we can take some more questions from our Discord server. Uh, the first thing that I want to cover is, uh, what is everyone's favorite uh, Warhammer Fantasy unit and why? Who's going to start? Well, let's have Tim start, I think. Um, one of my favorites um, is Sword Masters of Hoeth. Um, good choice. And I think... Yeah, I think it'd be really good if you managed to get um, Queens Who Wants to Live Forever playing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I used to enjoy watching Highlander. Um, there can be in, only one. Absolutely. Um, just the idea of these guys who spend a lot of time um, researching, and doing intellectual pursuits, but are also incredible um, swordsmen. Um, I think the artwork that they did at the time 
was top notch. Um, I don't think they even made a bad model. Yeah. In that particular reg- regiment, um, the fact that um, in various different rule sets for them, they had certain powers that could be activated, like cutting arrows out of the sky. Or, yeah. Um, Six up board. Yeah. Um, As a kid, I always thought they were just Jedi with uh, solid swords. Um, probably yeah. right. Um, there was a few things that sort of made it into some of the rules where um, I think it was either a wizard could take a greatsword or it was a character. The lore uh, master of Hoeth. Yes. Yes. There was the wizard that kind of went with them. They can still deflect shots. They still have the six up ward save. Oh, wow. I remember the uh, the lore master. You had the whole uh, take the first spe- like the signature spell of every lore of battle magic was his big thing. That's right. The lore of signatures. The lore yeah. of signatures, and he was a level two. Mm-hmm. I think also outside of the game, um, in the background, um, the Phoenix King would dispatch the agents of the lore master to root out cults of Slanesh. So they've got that kind of super spy feel to them. You can probably imagine that. In as much as there's a dark elf assassin in the court, there's probably a swordmaster equivalent um, sat next to Marafi serving her wine and sending info back, and possibly, you know, um, elf James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I like it. Uh, yeah, uh, the Lord Masters of Hoth is a is a cool unit. That's for sure. There's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of character uh, in that unit. Um, I'd probably say my favorite fantasy unit is the Imperial General on the Griffin, the plastic one, uh, from more recent times. Uh, a lot of nostalgia with that unit. Uh, it was, could be built as Karl Franz, and that's how I always ran it in my army. Uh, on Deathclaw. On Deathclaw. Um, just a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in that big, big bird with all these lovely feathers, uh, and... The ability to run the giant monster around as a ch- as a child against uh, much more experienced war gamers, and ram this five hundred point model into their front line and watch it collapse, uh, it's very good fun, especially in the end times when he got his massive buff as well. Yeah. But I also love the other ways that the kit could be built. It could also be built as a uh, a two headed griffin, I believe, uh, with the uh, the Lord of Beasts wizard on the back of it. Right. Uh, because they had all their beast magic, so they could split the heads in two, or whatever. Um, I really loved the uh, the look of that one, how it was painted in the, uh, the Empire Army book, specifically for 8th edition, of the, the blue feathers on that one. It was very uh, evocative for me as a child. Um, and it's maintained a lot. I've maintained a lot of that love for that kit uh, ever since, really, I think. Yep, that is a cool kit. And I remember you pushing it around the battlefield and slamming it in. I remember you tabling somebody's Tomb Kings with it. Um, <laughs> that was a good day. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, I think, you know, I, I have a lot of units that I really like. Um, I think the one that I'm going to kind of highlight for this question is um, I, I really like the uh, Screaming Bell uh, unit from the Skaven. Um and I particularly like it when it's pushed by the storm vermin because I think the storm vermin look really cool in their heavy armor. Um, you know, they 
Uh, it's not a good tactical choice necessarily to have the screaming bell pushed by storm vermin, but um, I, I just I love the idea of you know this crazy rat wizard on top of this enormous bell. Like the bell's got to weigh tons, like literal tons, and and they're they're pushing it across this battlefield also that he can ring it and maybe turn more of your guys into rats like it's very thematic uh, i like that it 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 does stupid things when you roll a 13 you know which is you know obviously in the number that's important to the horned rat etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh yeah i think screaming bell with pushed by storm vermin is a very kind of cool evil bad guy rat man sort of feel to it yeah. was that bell taken from the city that the Skaven first appeared in. I did not know that. Is that is that? I uh, I don't know. Like is is it, is it the screaming bell or is it a screaming? I think bell? it's yeah. a screaming bell because any gracier can be mounted upon it. It's not a named character. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I guess it would be a war also that they could make. But I believe the first story. It's like they stole the Liberty Bell, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> but it told. Big ben. Yeah, yeah. It told thirteen times. Ah, and on the thirteenth toll, yeah, that's when the rats poured out from oh, absolutely so everywhere. So cool! I didn't know that. That's even cooler. Yeah. What time is it when it's thirteen o'clock? Time to call the exterminator. <laughs> it's too late by then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Other questions from the Discord. Uh, we have one about uh, base sizes for legacy models. Um, I've actually forgotten which which this one was. Uh, what, what was it? Um, Tim, do you want to take this one? Um, yeah, I, I. It was a. It's a question that keeps coming up, um, pretty much everywhere. Is so. There's new editions launched, and now everyone's models has to be on new bases if you have an existing army. Yep. Um, and some people are not happy about it, and some people are going through the grueling task of rebasing entire armies. This guy. <laughs> um, I think the first time. I mean, I think for, to kind of bookend it is, um, I think, kind of open it up to, if anyone's listening thus far, I mean, what will be your opinions on these new bases? Um, you know, if you've been playing, say, Kings of War, and you've been multi-basing or if you've been if you've kept your original army um what are you intending to do um yeah why what are your problems with it um you know if you want to send us in a question which is basically a rant i think that's fine as well <laughs> yeah 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 um I, I think the the original question was was um something along the lines of um i'm collecting a what is now called a legacy army. Um, the army list isn't going to be canon as far as um, going to workshop intends it to be, but I, I'm yet expected to rebase an entire army and it's not going to get any rules updates or boxes or arcane journals. Um, I think it's a valid question. Yeah. Um, I think, to be fair though, I mean... If you are playing what they're calling a legacy faction, that means that you don't have to buy <laughs> Forces of Fantasy, an arcane journal. You've saved yourself about 65 notes of some description, which you could easily spend on bases. But <clears throat> I, I, I want to hear um, 
what other people have to say on that. I mean, I, uh, that's a fair point. Um, I think it's not the expense for bases. It's the, yeah. it's the time spent, right? Yeah. So, uh, I'm currently rebasing, uh, various shades of elves, um, that were on beautiful scenic multi bases that I had used for Kings of War. Um, and they'd been put away in cases and not used for five years. So I thought, well, I might as well rebase them and use them for this game. Um, I uh, So either way, I would be rebasing. So it doesn't really bother me that much. Um, I think as far as the legacy armies are concerned, um, I mean, it does seem a bit cheeky to say, sorry, you don't have a supported army. But by the way, the rules now mean you have to be on bigger bases. Uh, I think it's a missed opportunity from Games Workshop where they should have said, uh, here's a shoe. You know, you can put your 20 mil base into this 25 mil shoe um, and we'll sell you 100 of them for 20 quid. And there you go. There's or whatever price, you know, 50 quid in their case, um, <laughs> whatever price they want to charge. But, you know, it would have been an easy upgrade path. Yep. Um, instead, people are going to third parties and 3D printers to, to get the same thing. And laser cutters as well. Right. Yeah. And the other the other option is uh, that you you flip from uh, having them, you know, neatly ranked in a movement tray in, on 20 mils to uh, putting them on a movement tray that has 20 mil slots. Um, five mils apart. That are five mm. mils apart. Right. Um, and uh you know, I think, again, you could argue that that is more expense, more time, um, whatever else. At the same time, uh, as as one person on our uh, Discord said, you know, they're so glad that fantasy is back that they'd be willing to give up their internal organs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, 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 we get to play with with our you know our favorite war dollies. Um, and, uh, you know, there's going to be more coming. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a, I feel like it kind of sucks, but six months from now, we won't be talking about it. Um, I think in six months, I think it still will be a thing. <laughs> However, <laughs> right. Um, I think it is worthwhile pointing out the benefits, um, particularly Citadel models. Um, there are a few models that are guilty of this um mantic dwarfs cough um that do not fit on the 20 mil bases okay the model does fit but it doesn't fit with beside, all, beside another beside one another one <laughs> yeah unless you twist it or something i mean it's yeah. about half the reason i think games workshop wanted to upgrade to yeah. 25s and 30s yeah absolutely. upsize not necessarily an upgrade but yeah yeah i mean t they actually look like they fit together and rank up nicely which is Great. Remarkable, yeah, yeah. Um, the goblins look a little bit silly, but yeah. I think it's also worthwhile pointing out that I haven't researched this, but I believe that Warlord Games Black Powder and possibly Hail Caesar Games um, don't have official bases. They okay. just let you play. Imagine that. Yeah. Um, but. Um, kind of following on, on from that i think a lot of gamers out there are are referencing the fact that new bases exist but aren't being finicky so if they'd rather actually get the game in yep than tell off their opponent for 
you know one model that might be uh, on the wrong base size yeah um so you have to be generous with measurements and things being yeah. half an inch out you just call it half an inch in yeah yeah i think um that that's really where the 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 gaming advantage or disadvantage might come from yeah is you know if the if the unit is so general rule of thumb the smaller the footprint of the unit uh the more maneuverable it is uh and uh therefore uh you know the better it is in the movement phase which is you know the the most important phase in the game uh so you know having things on a smaller base it could be argued that you know then this is a, an advantage um because instead of being 125 millimeters wide uh, which is what 525s would be you're only 100 millimeters wide um which is you know an inch an inch yeah. shorter um so i think if you're at the stage of the game where you're playing and you're getting angry about that or ups or people are getting upset about that uh, a you're probably playing with the wrong people uh and, and b <laughs> uh you know if those are the types of games you want to be playing you know then you're you're talking about the super competitive side of of wargaming and you're going to have to change the new bases at some point anyway because that's what the rules are for everyone else which i think is 95 percent of people playing old world the minute if not 99 percent just play the game put the base put the game on the put your miniatures on the table roll some dice have some fun uh and you know stop worrying about what size your bases are um yeah <laughs> totally um i think to conclude i think we should have a, a minute silence for the fantasy gamers out there who rebased for age of sigma yeah and then possibly rebased from Age of Sigma to Kings of War, <laughs> and are now rebasing yet again for Warhammer: The Old World. Um, yeah. So either a minute silence, or I think a round of applause <laughs> for everyone who's everyone who's basic who's rebasing an army. I think you know deserves a pint or a cup of tea. I'll go one better. to wrap it up uh, this has been the Rank and Flank Podcast thank you very much for listening and see you in the next one bye bye